The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Support for this show is brought to you by Tarcher Peregrine, publisher of Life Lessons, the new book of affirmations by Julia Cameron best-selling author of The Artist's Way. Buy life lessons wherever books are sold. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Jamal Yogis, a graduate of Columbia Journalism School. Jamal's reporting has been featured in ESPN Magazine, The Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, San Francisco Magazine, Sunset Magazine, dozens of, of, of magazines. His first book, Saltwater Buddha, is about his leaving home and almost becoming a Zen monk, and that was turned into a documentary film. His new book, All Our Waves Are Water, is reviewed in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health Magazine. We're going to talk a little bit about both books. Jamal Yogis, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rabbi Rami. This is going to be fun. Uh, let's just start with some of your background. So I know your mom is Jewish, your dad is Catholic, but they both seem to have found their spiritual path in your namesake, Baba Jamal Singh. So can you tell us a little bit about who, who he was and what he taught and, and what it was like growing up in this Jewish Catholic I don't know what you know Hindu or or, or or Sufi mix. I mean, whatever whatever Baba Jamal was about. What what was what was growing up like? Yeah, the the Church of Spiritual Muttism. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I know embarrassingly little about Baba Jamal other than my parents. Um, he was uh, his sort of. Uh, student student or the the guy who was passed the torch when i was born was sanchi and my parents were studying under him he was a sikh and he was teaching in boston around the time uh i was born and my parents were studying under him pretty my mom had become a full disciple and uh so baba jamal singh they actually never met but he was one of the great saints of their lineage and um they just, they liked the name a lot and uh, they liked the meaning, I think, in Sanskrit is like victory to the victorious one. Um, you know, my dad was not into sports, so I <laughs> figured I had anything to do with that. <laughs> he actually wanted to call me Baba Jamal and my mom fortunately convinced me him out of that. But yeah, they were, uh, you know, they were looking to, I think, get off the hamster wheel and, and do... Uh, live an alternative lifestyle and we're cooking in health food restaurants and ironically then they went kind of the other way and I became a military brat and my dad was in the air force um, so we had this kind of interesting mix of like you know all the stuff you would expect all the books you would expect in like a typical bohemian uh, household and then also uh, 
were like living on military bases and we would we were into Christmas and celebrated Hanukkah sometimes, but we also went pretty frequently to the Paramahansa Yogananda Center uh, near our house. Um, and so Paramahansa Yogananda was more the sort of yoga influence in my life once I, because they sort of, there was no Sikh center around um, where we were in Sacramento when I was growing up. But it's kind of cool that my namesake is a Sikh because Sikhism is a blend of kind of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam. And, uh, and my, you know, my interest in comparative religion really does sort of so it suits want you. to bridge those. Yeah. <clears throat> So were there practices that your parents did in the house? I mean, did they follow? I mean, if they were also interested in Parahamsa Yogananda, I mean, that's um, uh, the autobiography of a yogi and and his specific kind of, of meditation practice. Were you introduced to that stuff when you were young? They were, um, they did some Kriya Yoga, which was uh, Paramahansa Yogananda's thing, but they were kind of, I think because by the time I was, I don't know, six or seven, they'd studied under some different teachers and they had developed their own, yeah, meditation practice that they did. I was never clear exactly on what they did, <laughs> um, but they did meditate and do some asana and we were invited in to do that, you know, animal poses and things. And we would usually just giggle and, you know, then go play our games. And so... I think being exposed to yoga and meditation as like a normal thing was part of my upbringing, but then I didn't get into it on my own and it wasn't in any way really introduced to us formally um, until I decided to get into it on my own. Um, so and that's when you had already left home. That, that was, right? How, how pretty much you? happened corresponding with leaving home. I mean, so when I was 16, I was getting into all sorts of trouble and um, I like to say that I wasn't the bad kid. I just got caught a lot. And I think I had a secret, <laughs> secret desire to get caught um, to sort of as maybe a catalyst to change my life. But anyway, I, I ran away to Maui, uh, one-way ticket, and thought I was going to paradise. Um, realized living over there with no money at 16 was hard. And I think it was that hardship that eventually made me say, hey, I should look into the <laughs> meditation because I need I need a crutch, and it was what I knew. And you went to Zen from in Hawaii. Well, I picked up a Thich Nhat Hanh book there, and so I started counting my breath as he instructs, um, and immediately uh, found it really uh, profound. Not that I was any good at it. I actually, I think it was that I was so bad at it that I found it profound. That. I think I thought having this name, like I would be good at meditation. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, I, I remember as a typical 16 year old sitting down, reading that the Buddha said I wouldn't, he wouldn't get up until he was enlightened from under the bow tree and saying, I'm going to do that right now. And I lasted about 15 minutes before my knee felt like it was going to blow up. <laughs> I said, wow, this is hard. And I think that kind of, that combined with the fact that I was coming out of a world that was very much about the pop high school popularity contest and this was clearly something else where it was like internal joy oh uh i don't know about this and i want to know more and so long story short my dad came over to get me in maui 
they said, you're on probation for a DUI. You need to get back home before this really gets bad. And they ended up sending me to France my senior year of high school, where I went and stayed with Thich Nhat Hanh in Plum Village, got really into it, and then came back and lived at a Chinese Chan Buddhist monastery my, just after high school for a year, thinking I wanted to be a monk. And um, I almost did, and then, uh, and then didn't. So that, I mean, that's serious practice, both Thich Nhat Hanh and then, then Chan Buddhism. So, so why didn't you? What, what, was the, what happened? <laughs> there are many ways to answer that question. One is that my abbot, a very wonderful man named um, Hung Shur, Reverend Hung Shur, um, said, hey, you might want to try college. And it was very in encouraged in this tradition, which is a lifelong commitment monk tradition, uh, to go to college first because uh, it's, you know, more likely that you'll stick with it if you've already been exposed to to the world a little bit. And But the true story is actually a, a couple weeks before I was going to ordain, um, I had this jarring dream in which I was, uh, I was getting on a spaceship <laughs> with some of the monks and I, I'd gotten out into outer space and uh, and basically, uh, they were they were giving me all these lines like, "Look at what you've left behind. It's so it's so great you've gotten out of Dodge. Look at all the gluttony and lust and just greed of the Earth." And they showed Earth exploding. And in that moment, I said, "No, wait a minute. You guys are wrong. There's all this beauty to the world. There's music and there's you know uh, there's theater and there's." It was like I, I gave this like Shakespearean, you know, speech about the beauty of the world. And I came out of it and being like, holy, <laughs> I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready to leave that behind. And there's something I need to explore. So that that uh, was enough to say I should I should try college. <laughs> and I did. And. I mean, to some extent, that experience in the monastery was so intense and so uh, wonderful in so many ways, um, but was so hard to integrate back into the world afterward that I think my books, all three of them, have been um, sort of writing my way into integration. Oh, interesting. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. And is it working for you? Uh, <laughs> I think it is. I think it is. I think um, every uh, to be able to go back into those memories of practice, um, I, I get to relive them in a certain way and then see ways in which times where I thought going back to the world was like my downfall because I got heartbroken and it was so hard and the job market was hard and everything was hard out here. <laughs> um, and then looking back and seeing how, wait a minute, it was those difficulties, it was the failures, it was the heartbreaks that catalyzed having to go deeper in practice and really like find an internal reservoir and learn how, you know, just like the Zen master 
as you know, kicks you out of the cave if you're there too long and says, go get a job in the market. Like you need those challenges. And, um, and I think writing about them helps me bookmark that. So when I'm in the challenge again, I'm like, Hey, wait a minute. I learned something the last time from this. Let's not forget that these, uh, dark spots are, you know, where the light is. That's what the Chinese call the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. So you just have to be able to to surf those. And that's another part of your life that that seems to be informs your, your spiritual understanding of things. Is that fair to say? Surfing? It is. I mean, I think I always looked at surfing, I, not always, but as I my surfing coming of age came in unison parallel to some extent with my learning to meditate and they're both very difficult and uh kind of lifelong practices and um surfing as a contemplative aspect you can't bring your cell phone and whatnot and you're out there with nature but it can be very rough and tumble and it can also then go back to silent and because that's the way the sea is and i always kind of saw it as like hey this is this is Zen for the world, the surfing thing. And if I can use it as my bridge between, you know, what the Chinese would say, heaven and earth, you know, <laughs> your, your, uh, your, your, uh, your, your, you know, that bridge uh, to that bridge is the bodhisattva path, you know. So. Sure. So let, let me ask yeah. you this. So, so I, I realize it's more than a metaphor, but I don't surf, so I'm going to live on the metaphor end of the thing. I mean, it seems to me, I mean, you know, reading your book, looking at some of the other things online, surfing is like, oh, I don't know, navigating the the wildness of your everyday existence. The I mean, literally, I don't want to sound silly, but of the ups and downs, you know, of things that you have to learn to keep your balance when you in a situation when you really have no control over the sea, all you have is your ability to shift with every nuanced uh, as nuance of the of the ocean itself. Is that do you see that sort of as a as a metaphor for how you learned people should live their lives? And I should have had you around when I was writing this. That was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. I mean. Surfing is really interesting. It mimics, I think, uh, um, so much of what we experience in the world where there are times to put your head down and have grit uh, when you're paddling out through these relentless walls just to get out there. And then there are, um, and it's about embracing the struggle. And then there are times when it's about embracing and, and surrendering. And that's your time waiting on your board and enjoying the horizon. And that's kind of um, that practice of sort of opening up to just being. And then, um, which is also the whole thing, but then there is the riding of the wave where it's about opening up to this other power that's bringing you. And when you're on that, you know, not trying to control it too much, harnessing the power. Um, so there's so many aspects um, there in just the physical act. But then there's also this really cool, you know, I quote Rumi um, in the book, that, that wonderful poem where he says, you're not an ocean, not a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. And uh, various Zen masters have also said, you know, the sort of 
constructed self, the self that feels separate from everything is very much like a wave and one's Buddha nature is the sea or the water itself. And so um, that metaphor of, oh, you know, yes, waves do look separate and yet they're always connected and always, I guess, um, their energy moving through this greater medium has been such a metaphor for me of um, just what's happening in the world so, and what spiritual so Jamal, practice I, is I, about. Yeah, I, I'm going to interrupt because we only got two minutes left, and I want to. Okay. I mean, now you've explained really beautifully the title, "All Our Waves of Water." So, having just found out before the show that you have three little kids, what under six? Is that what you said? That's right. <laughs> All right. So you have three little boys under six. So now tell me how you surf that. How, how do you, how, how is your, your experiences? How do you bring that into your, oh, the wild sea of parenting three little under six boys, six year old boys? I mean, I tried big wave surfing. This is extreme sports, the real deal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the emotional waves that one goes through in a day. I mean, if I could just bring you through today, the number of things that um, where we narrowly avoided the five-year-old, you know, trying to bring the baby down a steep staircase, whatever. It's like the adrenaline is pumping. And, um, and to try to find compassion and poise and balance and not go so far into the red that you're going to regret it <laughs> is, you know, that's my everyday life. And it's, uh, I'm so grateful for the practice to, yeah. you know, be able to come back and, and it, it helps keep me a little more stable. So, so I think, cause we have to wrap this up, but, uh, just the, I can't quote you cause it went by pretty quick, but this notion of compassion and balance and not going into the red, uh, that seems like something that everyone listening to you at the moment can, can take from, from your experience and say, oh yeah, I need to, I, I need to ground myself in this notion of balance, compassion, and, and avoiding the extreme redlining of things. So if, if there's other advice really quick, I would love to have you share it. <laughs> well, I, um, I really, going back to that be all being like waves on the ocean, I've come to really see Zen practice and spiritual practice as, as one of accepting the wave that you are. And there is so much in that that brings you back from the red. You know, when you're, because so often our redlining is about criticizing ourselves once we're getting close to the red. And, and that self-acceptance piece is really helpful to me. I'll leave it at that. Okay, and we'll, we'll, we can all benefit from that. So thank you very much. Our guest today was Jamal Yogis. His new book, All Our Waves Are Water, is reviewed in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Jamal's work on his website, jamalyogis.com. And uh, what, what's the situation with the documentary? Is that out? Is that coming out? It is. It's viewable on Vimeo. If you just Google Saltwater Buddha and type in Vimeo, it'll come up. You can rent or download it there. Perfect. Jamal, thank you so much for speaking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rabbi Rami.
Support for Essential Conversations is brought to you by Tarcher Peregrine, publisher of Life Lessons, the new book of affirmations by Julia Cameron, the best-selling author of The Artist's Way. You can buy Life Lessons wherever books are sold. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.